once you give up the doctrine of God, you fall into these other problems. Because the Trinitarian idea of God is what makes the gospel possible. You're not saved unless God is who he says he is. Only Christ, God himself, can come and pay for our sins. And the Holy Spirit, if he is God, is the only one who can sanctify us and give us victory over sin and indwell us and give us the victory that we have. An influence cannot do that, but God himself. So once you give up the idea of the Trinity, as he did, you fall into the problems that they fell. Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for April 29th, 2018. Today, Brother Omar brings us part six of his message called Statement of Faith, Doctrine of God. Today, Brother Omar digs into the false teachings of the Jehovah's Witness. Brother Omar gives us the history on how the movement was started and why the details of Christianity matter. Brother Omar says that we as Christians need to make sure that what we teach and believe is God's word and that it can be traced back through history through the apostles. Brother Omar also says that the details matter when it comes to theology, the study of God's word, and the truth about who God is. So grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's word here on Followers of the Way. Today, we're going to continue on our Statement of Faith series, the Doctrine of God. So today we're going to talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses. I want to get into a little bit of their history, where they come from, how they came about, and all that stuff. Very good stuff. But the Jehovah's Witnesses is probably the most successful, long-lasting, heretical cult in history. They claim about 60 million members. And just about everywhere you go, it doesn't matter what country you're in, you're going to see them out there, irregardless of where you go. Even nowadays, I've noticed that they actually stand out with their magazines, like outside. And I remember when I first seen it, I thought, somebody's selling magazines. I went up, you know, and they're, and they're like, I thought it was like National Enquirer or something. They're like, no, Jehovah's Witnesses. So I was like, oh, okay, well, National Enquirer is probably more reliable than. But anyways, we're going to talk a little bit about their history. And last time we were talking about Arianism, the doctrine of Arianism and Arius and what he taught. So a little bit of a summary on that is Arianism was not like the first heresy that the church dealt with, but it was the most formidable. It was the biggest in the early church to the point that it, it threatened to take over the church. And it was largely due to the fact that Arius was a very intelligent man and he used scripture. Now you have to understand that in those days, the Bible was not as readily available to everybody. So the way that you, you heard the scriptures is you had to go to church and the scripture was read and it was explained. So Arius, contrary to some other folks that came before him, he used the Bible. He used the Bible well, not in the sense that he interpreted or taught it well, but that he used it to back up his arguments. And he didn't base his ideas on visions or uh, revelations. He based it on scripture and reason. He was very reasonable in his approach. So Arius' issue originally was that he wanted to defend the Christian faith against the attacks of the pagans. So in ancient Rome, paganism was the religion of the majority of people at the time. And as Christianity is growing and becoming more influential, 
you know, the pagans and start attacking the Christian faith. And their main argument was like, you know, you blame us for being idolaters because we believe in different gods, yet you guys worship three different gods. You worship God the Father, you worship God the Son, you worship God the Holy Spirit. You're in the same boat as we are. So why are you calling us idolaters? So Arius came up with an argument to defend the Christian faith, and his argument was simply this. Arius taught that the Father was the supreme being. God the Father was the supreme being, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, the creator of all things. He is God, God the Father. Then he also taught that the Son, which he called the Logos, was a divine being created by the Father sometime in eternity past. And God the Father made him a God by his power and a medium or emissary through whom he created all things that are made. So his argument was this. We Christians believe in one God, one supreme being, God the Father. This God created another being called the Logos, which is the Son. And through the Logos, he created everything else. So the Logos who is Jesus, was a creation of God, but God gave him Godhood. He made him a God, and then through him he created all things, right? So it's a reasonable argument. It makes, it makes quote-unquote sense. So he also taught that the Father was too pure and too holy to have any relationship with his creatures. We are sinful. We cannot have any type of personal relationship with the Father. So the Son is the medium through which we can have any relationship with the God, right? So we can only have a relationship with Jesus Christ because he's a being, a created being, like we are, although he is greater than we are. So he built his argument using scripture, using words like logos, using words like begotten, all of which are in scripture. So he built his argument, and this whole thing spreads throughout the whole Roman Empire. Then we get to the Council of Nicaea, where this is all declared a heresy. But after the Council of Nicaea, Arianism actually grew more and began spreading, making it all the way to places like Spain, Germany, and other places like that, where this thing just became very popular. And at this point, when you get to the Council of Nicaea, it's not as big of a movement. But you go a couple of years later, it has grown. And now it's a little bit harder. Like if you're an emperor or you're a politician and you have 50% of your jurisdiction is buying into one thing, your language is going to change from we need to stamp them out to, you know, maybe we should figure out a way to get along. So the idea was that, okay, Arianism is different from the Trinitarian, but it's not that bad, right? It's, it's okay. We can... We can figure, let's figure this out. Let's talk about it. So there was this cranky man from North Africa named Athanasius who would not have that. Athanasius said, no, that is not the doctrine of the Bible. That is not the doctrine that has been handed down to us. And this is a heretical teaching. Now, Athanasius, remember I said Arius was a very intelligent man. He used scripture well. He was... Uh, very reasonable. Well, it took an even more intelligent, reasonable, well-scripture man to stand up against him. So the whole thing became Athanasius 
versus Arius. And Athanasius would not give up his doctrine. He said there was no reconciliation between these two things. He's worshiping a different God. Athanasius based his ideas straight out of the Bible. He began using scripture, all of scripture, all over the Bible to prove his point and to prove his doctrine. So lesson number one is we don't build our arguments based on the opposition. See? Arius began with the problem with, okay, you guys are saying that we are idolaters because we worship three gods. Let me see if I can find an argument to defeat that. Okay? Athanasius says, no, we developed our arguments from the scripture. If the people think this is what we teach, let them think whatever they want to think. We build our arguments from God's word. So God's word teaches that God is one God, and three persons. So the objections that people were given is that that doesn't make sense. We cannot explain that in any human way. And Athanasius' answers was simply that it's what the scripture teaches. We're finite. God is greater than we are, but it's what the scripture teaches. So Athanasius goes on. People are telling him, listen, this is a small little detail. You're making a big deal out of this. And the whole battle boiled down to one letter. The, the entire Roman Empire is fixing to divide over one letter, the letter I. Okay? So in the Greek, you have this word, homoousios. Okay? This letter here, the letter I, is what the battle was about. Okay? They fought this out for almost 100 years through 11 emperors. Okay? This means of like the same essence, all right? Homo, now if you take this out, this means of the same essence. Arius taught that Jesus was like, of like or similar to the Father. Athanasius taught that Jesus was of the same essence as the Father. He was very God of very God, the same essence. So this whole thing boiled out to that one letter. Arius was banished from Rome, and he was excommunicated. Then he was brought back. Athanasius was banished, excommunicated, and brought back. This thing went back and forth. And eventually, the biblical doctrine was preserved in the church. Arianism eventually died out. Now, splinter groups spread out through the Roman Empire. And this thing went on up, up until about the 7th century. There were still some people that held to this belief, but eventually it disappeared. The Middle Ages come through, the Reformations come through, and the whole Arianism loses out. That is until the 1800s in America. Something happened in the world, and that is the United States becomes a nation. This is a whole new thing. This is a big deal, okay? Now, America comes out of nowhere, a new nation, forced in liberty and freedom for white people, and <laughs> if you were white. So you have 1776, the United States become a country. Now, the interesting thing, American history is very awesome. You got to read American history. And by American history, I mean not the stuff they tell you in schools. That is called fiction. The stuff that you need to read in American history is that the United States was unique in the fact that this whole country was formed out of these different religious movements. All these religious groups, these Christian religious groups, 
came over to the United States and they started taking these different sections of the country. So if you lived in New England, it was a Presbyterian, Congregationalist. If you lived in uh, Georgia, it was Anglican. If you lived in Maryland, anybody wants to guess? Maryland? Anyone? It's on the name. The land of Mary. The ver okay, there you go. Maryland. Okay, so all these different groups start taking over these different sections of the colonies, and a series of revivals begin to happen, okay? Primarily under the preaching of a guy named George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. And John Wesley stayed in England most of his time, but he was, this stuff is happening at the same time. So something called the First Great Awakening happens. So it's religious revivals, people are getting converted, there was like a renewed interest on the Bible and in Christianity. So America as a nation is a result of all of those different movements. So when 1776 happened and the country gains its independence, what happens now is that war came through the nation and war has a tendency to make people depressed and question things. So a great disillusionment followed after the American War, and there was conflicts that lingered on after the, you know, the War of 1812, etc. So we get into the 1800s, and we get into this period where all sorts of things start to happen. Primarily is people have become disillusioned with the institutional churches and the European form of Christianity that have made its way into the United States as founding. Now, European Christianity is different. European Christianity is very institutionalized, right? It's big churches, big cathedrals, ritualistic, uh, creeds, confirmations, all of those things. So here in the United States, this is a young country. We escaped Europe. We want to make things happen. It's our own destiny. We have to take hold of our things. So this old form of religion seems obsolete to the new Americans, right? So because European Christianity is very structured and creedal, the rituals and creeds at the time were seen as cold and, and dead. So preachers began going through the colonies, well, after the states, because this is after the war, and they just start preaching, and something new came about known as a revival. Revival preaching started, okay? Now, revival preaching was that preachers who were not necessarily even attached to any type of church would go to different towns and they would have campaigns and tent meetings and large crowds and preaching. And this is a country that is a frontier country. There's nothing out there. We're going out, we're building. So these guys are going ahead and, and riding their horses and preaching into these different places, these different revivals of thousands and hundreds of people start getting saved. This is all over the place. But this is not structured. See, in the first awakening, like John Wesley and all, these men were attached to, like John Wesley was an Anglican priest all his life until he died. So it was a preaching, it wasn't aimed as bringing anything new, we were just simply going back to the old form of Christianity, right? This new preaching in America was innovative. We're not going back to that. So, all throughout the country, you have these revivals. Great things were happening. People were getting genuinely saved. 
People were being transformed. Entire towns were being transformed. But with revivals and emotional movement come other things too. A lot of these preachers were not trained theologically. They were not very educated. And they were reports of things like people running around, people barking like dogs, people vomiting all over the place, and all sorts of crazy things are happening during these revivals. So the environment was perfect during this time. Because you have, number one, a young country expanding, growing. Number two, disillusionment with the old form of religion. Number three, revivals happening with some refreshing new thing that God is doing. Number four, the preachers were not necessarily educated. Number five, there were political problems happening in the United States. Number one, a conflict is brewing between the North and the South. The nation is fixing to split apart. Now, this is a country that had a lot of hope and promise. This is the country destined to rule the world. And here we are a couple of years into this, and we're fixing to fall apart. So you had that. So doom, gloom, religious emotionalism, all these things happening in America at that time. And then a new form of Christianity arises, which is called evangelical Christianity. This is a very American thing. No creeds, none of that, just the Bible, just the pulpit, and we preach to a crowd. We go from town to town, campaigns, uh, religious revivals, and all of that. And also, a new thing was Jesus is coming soon, like tomorrow maybe, or maybe the day after. But he's coming, and he's coming like right now. That was a new thing. Historical Christianity always understood that Jesus was coming back. We just didn't know when, okay? American Christianity, he's coming back tomorrow maybe. So, you have a group of people. This is all brewing. And from amongst all of this stuff that is happening comes a man by the name of William Miller. He's a Baptist. God bless the Baptist. He's a Baptist preacher. All right? So, the emphasis that of the eminent return of Jesus Christ, a man by the name of William Miller, who was a Baptist preacher, began studying the scriptures and using something called numerology to calculate the return of Jesus Christ or the second advent. This is what it's called, the second coming of Jesus, theologically known as the second advent. So he calculates, in 1829, he calculates that the return of Jesus would be sometime between 1843 and 1844, okay? 1843 or 1844. So he began writing articles for a magazine called The Science of the Times, and by 1840, his movement goes national. So full 21 years before the event, he calculates that Jesus Christ is coming back in 1843, 1844. So, you know, as the countdown begins to happen and we get closer and closer to that date, he begins to write in a magazine called The Science of the Times. And here's another thing that comes about out of this, this, this new style of Christianity is prophecy. The idea of biblical prophecy or interpreting biblical prophecy by the signs and the things that are happening. Now today, that's common, right? I'm telling you stuff, you're like, what are you talking about? This is the way things have always been. This is the time when all of this came about. Now, 
As we get to the 1840s, the people who are followers of his start selling their homes, they start selling their farms, because Jesus is coming back. And his followers, they were called the Millerites. By the time 1843 happens, nothing happens. It's just another day, like, like any other day. So the great day of Jesus' return didn't happen, and his followers were very disappointed. And William Miller came back, and he recalculated, and he came up that it was going to be October 21st, 1844. So everybody waited another year, and nothing happened. All right? So after 1844, people decided, okay, nothing is happening. Let's gather together. What's going to come up out of all of this? So out of this, there was a conference in Albany, New York, and his followers, the Millerites, because they emphasized the second advent so much, they became known as Adventists. Okay. Now from the Adventists come four groups. There's four groups. The Evangelical Adventists, Life and Advent Union, the Advent Christian Church, and our good friends, the Seventh-day Adventists. Okay. Almost all of those other groups have died off. The Seventh-day Adventists are still with us today. So, why do I tell you all of that? There's a couple of things that the Adventists all share. Number one is, they don't believe in eternal hell. If you die, you don't go to hell, you're annihilated. Okay? You disappear. It would be too mean for God to send somebody to hell for all eternity, so you simply are annihilated. Number two, they believe in something called soul sleep. When you die, you don't go to heaven, your soul goes to sleep awaiting the resurrection. And number three, they believe in something called investigative judgment. Remember Jesus was supposed to come back in 1843? He did. He just went to heaven. And now he's investigating the believers and seeing the works in their life to decide who is going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. Interesting is that if Jesus returned to heaven, where was he at before? <laughs> so somehow he returned to heaven. He just, I guess he turned around and went over here and boom, that's my second. But anyways, that's how they justify their little, little minor um, mistake of miscalculating the return of Jesus. He came back invisibly. All right. Why does this all matter? It matters because of this. In 1852, in the middle of all this mess, a man was born by the name of Charles Taze Russell. Okay? Charles Taze Russell was born in 1852, pretty much Pittsburgh. It, it's another name back then, but today it's Pittsburgh. Um, and by the, he, he grew up in a Presbyterian home, but by the time he's 16 years old, he begins questioning the Bible. He didn't like what the Bible taught about certain doctrines and certain teachings. So he decides that the Bible is false. The, the, the things that he, was, that he heard being taught were false. So he begins investigating other religions, but was unsatisfied until when he was 18 years old, he goes to an Adventist church and finds a renewed zeal after hearing their teachings. So he goes to an Adventist church. He hears what they teach. And he's like, hmm, that's interesting. I want to, you know, incur further. So he begins studying the Bible 
analytically, whatever that means, but that's what he said. He begins to uh, study the Bible, and he comes to the conclusions, and remember the themes of the time, he comes to the conclusion that the creeds and traditions of Christianity have been corrupted and needed to be restored to the first century. So he says, along with many people at that time, creeds and all this stuff from old is old and it's dead and it's corrupt. We need to rediscover the Christian faith. We need to go back to the Bible. Lesson number two. We need to go back to the Bible. But God didn't give us truth, then took it away and dropped it back in our day. Okay? God gave us his word, who is his final authority, but God also gave us teachers and men throughout history who preserved his truth. So, as a church, yes, we need to return back to the Bible, but we got to make sure that we're not teaching something unheard of before. We need to make sure that what we teach can be traced back. Now, men of God have disagreed. Men of God are finite. Men of God made mistakes. They're humans. But God has preserved his truth through men in his word. And the sexual doctrines of the Christian faith can easily be traced all the way back to the apostles. All right? So, lesson number one is, what was lesson number one? Everybody forgot. We based our arguments from the scriptures and not from logical arguments to oppose somebody else. All right? Number two, we need to return back to God's word, but in line with the tradition of the church. Tradition matters because tradition preserves things. Traditionalism is bad. Tradition is good. All right. So the church has been corrupted. The creeds are all false. The doctrines that are taught by the churches, by Christianity is false. We need to get back to the truth. So here's a couple of things. Number one is that I want to say, and I know this is going to sound like I'm attacking him personally, but there's overwhelming evidence that Russell was a con artist and a liar. Okay. Now, the reason I say that is because he was sued several times throughout his life, and he was forced to go to court and admit to things. Number one, he claimed that he spoke and read Greek and that he interpreted the Bible based on Greek. He was sued. He went to court. They show him a Greek alphabet. And no, I don't know Greek. Now, <laughs> I'm not attacking him. I don't speak Greek either. But I don't go around claiming that I know Greek. See what I'm saying? All right. The other thing about him is that he, this is a very funny thing. He sold something called Miracle Wheat. 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 He claimed that he sold them, supposedly, for $60 a bushel, and they would grow five times at the rate of regular wheat. A bunch of people bought it, and it was actually worse than the regular wheat. So they sued him again, and he had to go to court and admit that, no, there's nothing miraculous about this wheat, etc. So that's, that's the other thing. He was also sued by his wife. <laughs> and... During the lawsuit, he was also forced to admit to a whole bunch of things, dealings with money, etc. He also had, and I'm just going to read it to you because I couldn't believe it, but it's here. He taught this thing called fallen angels. Let me read to you 
what it is. The following angels refer to Russell's doctrine that supernatural demons could assume human shape and impersonate him and make improper advances to women. So if you see me coming at you, it's not me. It's a demon that looks like me. So that's actually incredible. I couldn't believe when I read that. That's like, that's insane. He was constantly being quote unquote harassed by the Brooklyn Eagle Gazette because they didn't like him because they thought he was a con artist. So there's a lot of information on the internet about him and his life. But anyways, let's get to his doctrine, the doctrine of God. Charles Taze Russell hated the doctrine of the Trinity. It made no sense to him. Now, one thing about Charles Taze Russell that made him, that set him apart is like Arius, he did not base his teachings of revelations. Because you have to understand, this is the period that gave you Joseph Smith and Mormonism. This is the period that gave you the Shakers, Spiritism. All those things came out of this period, the 1800s, okay? All of those ideas are based on visions and things like that. Russell's thing was like, no, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. It is the only revelation, and it needs to be properly interpreted. So we need to return to the Bible. Well, that's attractive, right? That sounds good. So on top of that, he was a very charismatic speaker. He knew how to speak properly, and he quoted scripture. So here's a sermon. I'm going to give you a little excerpt from a sermon that I found online of him. This is him preaching. This is what he says. This is his definition of the doctrine of God. Number one, he says, The Bible says forth that Jehovah is the Almighty God, and that our Lord Jesus is his Son, his offspring, gloriously exalted to the Father's right hand of power, dominion, and glory, and as his chief representative and agent in all matters. The Father and the Son, although different persons, are one in the sense in which our Lord Jesus stayed in one mind, in purpose, in plan, in action, in everything except in person. How clearly the Master stated this to us, and how strangely we overlooked the force of His words. When He prayed for the church that he, we might all be one, even as Thou, Father, and I are one, the oneness of the church is certainly not a oneness of person, but a oneness of faith and hope and harmony and fellowship, even as it is the oneness of the Father and the Son. Read over the Master's words at your convenience at home. They are found in the 17th chapter of St. John's Gospel. Now, this man is preaching this very passionately, very charismatically, and it sounds like Bible. You could probably preach this same thing today in a church, and it would just go by. Bible. He goes on to say, As for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of a sound mind, it is the antithesis or opposite of a spirit of error, a spirit of vacillation, a spirit of Satan, a spirit of opposition to God, a spirit of unrighteousness or unholiness. These are not different spirit beings, but emanations from spirit beings, as the spirit of Satan is the spirit of evil or an evil influence or mind or disposition, a power emanating from Satan. So contrary wise, the spirit of God is the spirit of holiness, righteousness, truth, the emanation and display of the divine will, purpose, energy and power as this Holy Spirit proceeds from God the Father. So he's preaching this very charismatically, very passionately, quoting scripture telling you to go home and check the, the scriptures. So this type of message is attractive to people that are 
accustomed to seeing the more emotional stuff that was happening during that time. So, here's what he, he is saying, if you zoom in in his belief. We believe, as Christians, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are different persons. That means that the, the Holy Spirit didn't die for your sins, right? Jesus does not convince you. You're not born of Jesus. You're born of the Spirit. The Spirit didn't send Christ. The Father sent Christ. So we know these are three different persons, but they're one God. When he says that the Father and the Son are different persons, he means that they're different beings separate from each other. That the Father is one being, and then Jesus is another being. Now that can be traced back all the way to Arius. He believed that Arius was the man who held the truth that he was persecuted by the Catholic Church, who was evil, and then evil and corruption prevailed, and the truth was lost, and he was here to rescue the truth. Okay? So, this is the worst heresy that they teach. The Holy Spirit is an emanation, a power that proceeds from God the Father, and not a person. Now, as bad as their teaching of Jesus is, at least they have the decency to give him a personhood. <laughs> the Holy Spirit, according to Jehovah's Witness teaching, is not a person, is a power, is an influence from the Father. So he's not even a being, he's not even God, he's just an influence. He's the force. Okay? So, the Bible teaches... John chapter 14 says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, that is the Holy Spirit, for he dwells with you and will be with you. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what I have said to you. The Bible gives personhood to the Holy Spirit. He, him, he will guide you. He will dwell with you. I will send you this helper. These are all words that show that the Holy Spirit is a person. Not only is he a person, but he is God. But when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we're indwelt by God Himself. Now, we fellowship with the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says this, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We cannot fellowship with a force. We cannot fellowship with an emanation. We can only fellowship with a person. The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. Now, he goes on to say in this sermon, Russell goes on to say this, and the Bible explains that Jehovah's firstborn son was highly honored and that the father used him as the channel and agency through whom all subsequent creations were effected. Now, this is very similar to Arius' teaching. The son is the medium, the channel, by which God creates all things and communicates with mankind. Now, he, it was who, was given the honorable commission and privilege of being man's redeemer. 
and of thereby proving his loyalty to Jehovah and of being exalted to the divine nature far above angels, principalities, and powers. From the very beginning, he was above all other creations, affected through him, but by his exaltations, he attained in his resurrection from the dead a place far and far away above all others next to the Father and God's right hand. He shall ever remain without peer. So like Arius before him, Russell taught that the Logos was a medium or agent of the Father used to create the world. The Father created the Son and the Son created everything else in that. In that sense, he is a God. So Jesus Christ is a God. Our Lord Jesus, Russell says, own testimony is that he is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of divine creation. In other words, when the Father created the Son, He never afterwards directly created any other person or thing. The Logos was the first and the last, and by Him were all things made that were made. So, He's the first and the last in the sense that when God the Father creates the Son, that's all He did. The Son went about and created everything else. So He quotes scriptures, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. But His explanation is that the Son was the first and last created beings that the Father made. After that, the Father steps out and the Son makes everything else. So, again, he's quoting scripture, he's very charismatic, he's very passionate, and he's teaching this in a time where Christian education was not all there. So he starts gathering adherents. People start coming in and you know, okay, we're rediscovering the truth and so forth. So he starts writing a magazine called Zion's Watchtower and the Herald of the Presence of God. Eventually, it changed into the Watchtower and the headquarters were moved to Brooklyn, New York. Now, one thing I didn't know is, uh, well, I didn't know that they produced their magazine every week in 150 languages, which is insane. Like every week the issue comes out in 150 different languages. And it all comes out from the same headquarters. And another thing that I found out recently that I did not know is that every Sunday or whenever they meet for church, all the, the preachers receive and preach the same sermon. So if you're in China or if you're in Goldenrod in Orlando, you're hearing the same sermon in whatever language. Another thing I didn't know, which is crazier, even that. Not even the Pope does that. So, I don't know. Well, the Watchtower Society, we don't know who those people are, but they prepare the sermons and they come out. Another thing that they teach is that even though we return back to the Bible, and even though we have to come back to the teachings of the Word, we need to interpret the Bible through the teachings of the Watchtower Society. Even to the point, Russell said, that if you have to choose <laughs> between his writings and the writings of the Watchtower and the Bible by itself, you want to go with the writings of the Watchtower because they're going to help you properly understand the Bible, which on your own you will not, and you will default back to the Christian teachings. Okay? So 
if you ever find yourself as a Jehovah's Witness and you go home and you read the Bible and you find yourself returning back to Christianity, you're being deceived. You got to return back to the writings of the Watchtower. So this guy's built a pretty good system here. Okay? So, part of, uh, of Russell's idea of the doctrine of God is his, is his rejection of the Trinity, which he taught was pagan. It was an introduction of paganism into Christianity. And he misinterpreted, like everybody does, the idea that there is one God in three persons. He taught that, that it's impossible for three gods to be one God. We agree with him because that's not what we believe. We believe there's one God in three persons. God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They coexist, though, in one substance, and they share the same will and the same mind, but they're three distinct persons. 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, another claim of Russell was that the Bible didn't teach anywhere this doctrine. Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and being sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So, Peter says, you're chosen by God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. The full work of the Trinitarian God is at play in your salvation. When you get saved, you're chosen by God the Father, you are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, to obey and be cleansed by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is Trinitarian living. If you're saved, you're living the Trinity every day. Now, one of the issues they have, because they do not believe this, Jehovah's Witness doctrine of salvation goes back into legalism. The Holy Spirit is simply an influence in your life, God the Son is a created being. Your salvation must work, be worked out on your own, which includes evangelizing, which is what they do like crazy, and obeying the teachings of the Watchtower. It boils down to that. They will tell you they're saved by grace through faith. They're not saved by grace through faith. They're saved by the obedience to the watchtowers and dedication to the organization. Now, they have a lot of other weird teachings that I don't want to get to because we're mainly focusing on their doctrine of God. But once you give up the doctrine of God, you fall into these other problems because the Trinitarian idea of God is what makes the gospel possible. You're not saved unless God is who he says he is. Only Christ, God himself, can come and pay for our sins. And the Holy Spirit, if He is God, is the only one who can sanctify us and give us victory over sin and indwell us and give us the victory that we have. An influence cannot do that but God Himself. So once you give up the idea of the Trinity, as He did, you fall into the problems that they fell.
Now, remember when this happened. Remember the times. Creeds, traditions were tossed aside. Revivalism and emotionalism was a, was a bait. Doom and gloom. Christianity. All these things come together and brought all these different things. Mormonism came out of this period. Jehovah's Witnesses came out of this period. All this stuff that today we look at and we're like, it's crazy. It's all a product of that. The other thing that I want to emphasize before I finish, and I'll probably I'll come back to this next time because there's plenty more on Charles Taze Russell. Little, little small details matter. Remember Athanasius thing, it all boiled down to that one letter. People thought he's being too nitpicky. What's the big deal? Well, little things, little things sometimes matter. Even though they may sound good, they may sound positive, little things matter. And men like Athanasius risked being unpopular, disliked. Dude, what are you doing? You're being too mean. You're being too judgmental. What's the big deal? Nobody's bothering you. He was willing to put up with all of that for a small little detail that preserved for us the truth of who God is. So little things matter in theology, even though they might be insignificant to you. That was significant back then. It is significant for us now because we, the truth won out. But back then, that was not a big deal. What was, what was the big problem? You know what I'm saying? It's just, so what? Little details matter. And we have to be detailed in the way that we teach God's word and we learn it. And we have to be willing to be uncomfortable and to be unpopular even, even if it is for just one letter. Because Athanasius had the whole world, the whole famous thing, you know, the whole world is against you, I'll be against the whole world. As long as I'm good with God and his truth, you know, I'm fine if the whole world comes against me. So I'm glad he was a cranky, mean old, you know, man, but I'm glad he was, because a nice guy probably would have been like, oh, okay, right? So we have to be willing to fight even for details because those matter in theology. And the doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses, all this stuff that you see that they teach, they have stuff unheard of before, okay? What you see is all breaks down with their idea of who God is. <clears throat> Once you break that down, it all crumbles from there on. So I have this um, little, what do you call the... Stanza? Is that what you call them, the hymns? Okay. I have a little stanza here from um, Hark the Herald Angel Sings. You guys know that one, right? Uh, I'm not going to sing it, by the way. I'm just going to read it. This was actually written by Charles Wesley. I don't know if people know that. And the second stanza, which I will now read to you, says this. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, Offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That is straight out of the Bible. In hymns, the fullness of the Godhead dwells. Wesley says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That was five sermons I read to you out of that short stanza. 
This was produced by a man who knew the true doctrine of God. This came out of that. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. He came in flesh. Veiled the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. He is Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's not a divine being. He is a divine being. But he is God with us. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your doctrine, for your scriptures, Lord. We thank you that you have preserved it all these years, even through different places, different languages, different peoples. Your truth has been preserved and will continue to be preserved until you come back one day, Lord. Um, we pray that we may be able to stand in it. We pray that we may be able to filter out the errors, Lord, and that we may avoid the mistakes that, of those who came before us, Lord, and that we may be able to stand in your word and in your gospel, Lord, that brings us life and hope, Lord, for the future. I thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.